0: On episode 240 of the Tennis Files podcast, you'll learn about the art of deliberate practice and the keys to winning in college and junior tennis with coach Jonathan Stokey.
1: Welcome to the tennis files podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now here's your host, Marban Iranshad.
0: Hey there, and welcome to another episode of the podcast. My name is Marban Iranshad and today we have a great interview with Jonathan Stokey. And Jonathan hosts the baseline intelligence podcast, uh, which is a great show featuring awesome guests like. Jessica Pegula, Rajiv Ram, Craig O'Shaughnessy, who's been on the tennis summit before, Nick Saviano, and Carlos and Josh Goffey. And I first actually caught wind of Jonathan many years ago when I was in juniors. I had seen his name in the big uh, supernational tournaments in the juniors. And it's really cool to come full circle and to interview Jonathan on the show. And he definitely kept up his level. He uh, spent 14 years as both a student athlete and coach with the Duke University Men's Tennis Program. He was a former All-American and two-time All-ACC pick. While at Duke, he was a part of five seasons with 20 or more wins and seven NCAA team championship appearances, including trips to the uh, four trips to the NCAA Round of 16 and one NCAA Quarterfinal berth. Uh, I could go on and on about his. Playing and coaching accolades. But uh, just to give you one more glimpse, I guess, is that Jonathan posted a 93 and 59 overall singles record and a 113 to 47 doubles mark, ranking fifth all time on Duke's doubles list. And Jonathan now is a tennis coach in Charleston and uh, he does a lot of great work on online and on Instagram. Uh, You should definitely check out his Instagram page and we'll have links to that page and all of uh, the other links mentioned on the show today. And you're gonna learn a lot about how to practice deliberately and make your practices more efficient. And you'll learn a lot about Jonathan's um, junior and college career and how that can translate into success for yourself. And we are going to do our best to help you improve your game as always. And Jonathan also has some thoughts about online instruction as well, which is uh, definitely very interesting. So, definitely a wide ranging conversation. And also, a note that this is part one of my interview with Jonathan. Uh, we spoke for about two hours. So, that was really fun and very informative. And I really enjoyed re-listening to our episode. I'm not actually fully uh, finished with re-listening to it uh, myself, but I will get there. So with that, here is my interview, part one of my interview with Coach Jonathan Stokey. Hey everybody! Welcome to this episode of the podcast, and I'm really excited and honored to have Jonathan Stokey to the uh, on the podcast. And uh, yeah, it's it's really cool to connect, Jonathan. Thanks for coming on. Um, I actually remember you from like the junior days, seeing your name in some of the super national tournaments and things like that. And then you obviously went to Duke. Funny story. Um, my senior year of college, we we won our conference. And so we actually went to Duke and played you guys. But I, I don't know that you were on the team
2: because how old are you right now? I'm 37. So what year did you come to Duke?
0: Yeah, uh, 2003.
2: Oh, no, uh, yeah. If it was spring 2003, I would have been a freshman.
0: Wait, wait. Oh, I'm sorry. No, my bad. I'm, I'm mixing up everything. So let's see. What was high school? 19. Oh, my bad. 2007. <laughs>
2: 2007. Okay, so that was right. That was the year after I graduated. So it was a four-year gap where yeah. I played at Duke until 2006. Started coaching 2010. Oh. So I had a four-year gap. So you came right in that gap there.
0: Okay. Okay. Cool. Cool. Yeah, that was such a cool experience. Like your campus is, it's really nice and like very classy. Like the buildings. Um, but you guys destroyed us. <laughs> so I, I went. <laughs> yeah, I went to UMBC. I think you guys were probably like top ten at that point. Uh, do you remember? Were you, were you top ten when you were there?
2: Uh, well, when I was there, we were always in the top 10. I remember there was one, one week where we took a couple tough losses and we dropped out. And my coach at the time, Jay Lapidus, was like, I'll talk to you guys when you're back in the top 10. Like, that's our standard. <laughs> and we were all wow. like, oh, yeah, yeah, we, we got it. Um, my senior year, I think we were seeded third going into NCAAs. Um, and so we're always kind of in that five to eight range. And we ended up losing Sweet 16. And then I think when I graduated, we had five seniors on the team. So we mm. lost a lot. So I think that next year we were maybe a little bit lower than usual, but uh, then kind of worked our way back up in there.
0: Nice, nice. Still too good for uh, us mid major schools. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> good stuff, man. Well, yeah. Thanks again uh, for coming on. Uh, I'm curious. You know, I really enjoy hearing like the um, you know the beginnings of uh, of my podcast guests on like how they got into playing the sport. So how did you get your start playing tennis?
2: So I grew up in Long Beach, and I played baseball. So my dad. Played for Southern Cal. He won a national title there. uh, Ended up playing minor leagues for a bunch. And so I kind of played everything, a little bit of baseball. And when I was eight, I moved to Chapel Hill. And I still played everything, but I became a member of a country club. And I just kind of remember one day, you know, being at the pool and seeing the tennis courts and just kind of going like, huh, like, I don't know, let's go try that. And so I walked out and I gripped my racket like a baseball bat. I had two a two-hand forehand, a two-hand backhand, and I was making balls, and I remember just kind of going like, well, now what do you do? And someone said, oh, well, you can play tournaments. So I entered a tournament like a week and a half later, won a couple matches, and it was like, all right, this is, I like this, you know? And then after a year or two, you know you know how it is with tennis. If you're playing multiple sports, it's pretty difficult. Yeah. And so kind of by the time I was 12, I said, okay, I'm just, just going to go the tennis route. Um, it's what I want to do. It's what I need to do to be great. Um, so yeah, I just kind of saw it when I was at the club and picked it up and fell in love immediately.
0: Awesome. It reminded me of my friend, Tread Huey, who's a professional doubles player. And you might've run across him, you know, during your college days as well. Um, when he went to UVA, um, but he, I think he played a lot of baseball when he was young and he has a really good serve. I mean, did you find that that helped your, your serve or your athletic ability
2: overall? Uh, I think tracking the ball. And thinking of the sport more in just a competitive mindset, how do I beat my opponent? I wasn't, I was not technical at all. I mean, I actually, I told you it was a two hand, forehand, but technically it was a lefty backhand. My right hand was on top. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah. So no one would accuse me of having good technique. And, you know, I saw the game more from an athletic standpoint where it's like, I got to get the ball in the court and, and win. That's my goal. Not to look good, not to hit it in the center of the strings, but. I just want to walk off the court with a W. So yeah, technically I was a disaster, but I feel like playing other sports allowed me to not obsess on technique and just view it from a competitive tactical mindset.
0: Yeah, that's really important. Uh, Side note, did you have like a courier backhand?
2: Did it look like that? Uh, No, like my, my claim to fame is like I would take the racket back low. You know how you're supposed to take it kind of high with a unit turn Yeah, I would set my racket below my hand straight away. Okay, And it was the ugly, it was so ugly. And I think it kind of worked to my advantage because when people played me, it looked so bad. They'd get really frustrated when they were losing. I can't believe I'm losing to this guy. Look how ugly his strokes are. And uh, yeah, it was aesthetically an F, but they went in the court. So that's all that matters. Did did you like droop your
0: wrist like a lot? Was it super loose type or, or was it tight?
2: yeah it was it was loose and you you know if you freeze a backhand when novak's kind of dropping below the ball you know when his hands are at the biggest part of the drop that's Mm -hmm. close to just how i set my racket because in my mind i was like i was like well if that's what you want to get into why would i wait all this time why wouldn't i just get in that position and now i know the reasons for that but that's kind of how my brain worked at the time and then once you do it and rep it for a couple years it's really difficult to change
0: yeah yeah well Sim- simple, sometimes works really well. And, and then, like, at what point did you get uh, really serious, like, with the sport? And I'm curious. You know, in particular, like, what your training environment was like and how that progressed
2: for you. It's interesting. So, you know, I told you I kind of went only to tennis when I was about 12, uh, and I lived in Chapel Hill. I went to Normal High School. So, you know, I was practicing an hour to two hours a day max, somewhere in between there. Um, and it was just kind of after school. And then I remember my friend and I would just try to go dunk on my backyard basketball hoop for like two hours. We would mm-hmm. just jump right. That's like literally my athletic activity after school. And then when I was 16, I believe a junior in high school, my dad got a job in Princeton and I had no interest in moving up North. So I went to the nearest Academy at the time, which was Vandermeer in Hildenhead. Nice. And when I moved there, Then my practice kind of went to more like two and a half to three hours a day. And then um, I was actually part of the first group of people at Spistern's Academy my senior year. And I actually graduated early. And so I was kind of going like six, seven hours a day, which in hindsight was way too much, (laughs) but I also got really good that year. So it kind of a give and take, but yeah, most of my, my junior career is kind of like an hour to an hour and a half a day after school. And then the weekends I would play more, the summers I would play more, but yeah, not as much as a lot of juniors these days.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. And so what, what do you think in your game, I guess, at, at least when you were ranked like really high, and maybe I'll step back. Like what were
2: your junior rankings like, like, uh, each for each successive year? You're asking me to remember 20 years ago, but, <laughs> um, you know, I was always, Uh, You know, sectionally, I'd be, you know, the top one, two or three in the South with guys like Brian Baker, Um, Isner, Isner was a year below me, and he was a late bloomer. So when we were 14, 16, he wasn't really at the top, top of the section. And then nationally, you know, as a first year, I'd be 25 to 30 as a second year, I'd be in that 10 to 15 range. I, uh, you know, I'd always get to kind of the round of 16 of a national. And then I was very big on like how I saw myself. So if I played someone below me, even if I was ranked 16 and they were 17, oh, I should never lose. Mm. I'll beat this guy. He's, he's no good. And then if I played someone who was 10 and they were ranked above me, oh my God, he's so good. How am mm-hmm. I going to beat that guy? And so I kind of penciled myself in, you know, I was just routine. Like I, I rarely got upset, but I also rarely pulled off an upset because I kind of had myself pigeonholed in a certain area, if that makes sense.
0: It makes a lot of sense. Um, so, you know, after reflecting on that, like what types of advice do you give to your students when they're playing like somebody above? Cause you know, I had this as well, you know, it's like you almost like you lose the match before you step on the court. So, uh, what advice do you have for that type of situation?
2: I think, you know, zero expectations, mm-hmm. you know, I should win or I should not win. I mean, what does that even mean? You know, you don't know how your opponent's going to play. You don't know how you're going to play. And, You know, if you play someone who's exactly your level, I think you should win five out of 10 times and they should beat you five out of 10. And if you play someone better than you, maybe they win eight, but that means you win two and you don't know what day it's going to be. And so, you know, you go out, you focus on what you're supposed to be doing. Um, You leave your expectations at the door. You try your hardest. You see what happened in the match. You go back and improve. But I spent a lot of time just... I guess now it'd be UTR. Oh, their UTR is higher. Well, I mean, who knows how they got their UTR? You know, maybe they got some wins when other people weren't feeling great and maybe you're low cause you haven't played as much. So I think just throwing that all out the window, getting rid of your expectations, focusing on what you can control and just kind of going from there.
0: Yeah. That's great advice. I mean, I struggled too, when I was a junior and, um, you know, not, not as high of a level, uh, but uh, just, just kind of putting a lot of pressure on myself, you know. Depending on where the the person was ranked, yeah, it was funny. Well, when funny you, you, the, you, mm-hmm. Go ahead, sorry. Let
2: me, let me, the, the the funny thing is, it's like when you're one thing. I also remind people when you're playing someone better, you know. If I was the one seed in a sectional tournament, and I played someone below me, I was scared to death. I was nervous. I mean, I'm going, man, I can't lose that guy. I mean, he's he's ranked twenty. I'm one, or you know, I know I'm better than him. That'd be terrible. And so I was very, very nervous. And so I. You know, I asked my players now, well, if you're playing someone who's ranked above you, how do you think they're feeling? How do you feel when you play someone lower than you? You usually get tight too, right? So yep. Yep. there's a really good chance your opponent is scared of you. I mean, you might have doubts about them, but they certainly have doubts about you. And once you remember that, it kind of relaxes you a little bit.
0: Yeah, for sure. For sure. And um, yeah, it's funny because I was I was googling your your name for because like I <laughs> In my junior career, I got to play one Super National, which was at Woodmont Country Club in Rockville for the 16s, which was a really cool experience yeah. for me. And I, I remember seeing, uh, I, so I think James Wan beat be, Suqua Young in that. But I, I noticed uh, John Isner and he like he was like the 17th seed and he lost in like quarters or something. So just really amazing, you know, to see like like you said, like late bloomers, like just popping up like that. And how does that work? Like, I mean, was it just his game wasn't ready for that that type of that level of tennis at that age yet? And then, you know, it just, you know, blooms
2: later or what? So so John John and I have probably played 20 times uh, in wow. juniors. So he's from Greensboro. I was from Chapel Hill. Yep. He was yep. a year younger. You know, he played basketball a fair amount, like later into his career. So I don't think he was giving it the attention. And he also... You know, he wasn't whatever he is now, seven feet. He was like he was tall for his age, but he he was, you know, six two, something like that. And um, you know, I remember we beat them, we beat John, and uh, his partner was Brett Ross, a good friend of mine who ended up coaching at Wake Forest with me. But we beat them in the finals of Kalamazoo in two thousand and two. And I remember that year and kind of the one before is when John grew a little bit and also was kind of making that leap to where you're going, oh, now he's, he's, he's really good. You know, he's a, he's a good player. And then I remember when he came to college and was a freshman right away, we were like, oh, all right, got it. He's already one of the best players. And, mm. um, so I think with him, it was, you know, he grew into his body a little bit. And then I think he got rid of some of the other sports and probably dedicated himself a little more. Uh, but yeah, that was interesting because I always owned him when we were 14. <laughs> so I'll say I have wins over John, but not certainly not when he got to be what he is now. So, yeah. 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 Cool stuff.
0: So as far as your game, I'm curious, like, uh, you know, were you are you a serve volley or what, you know, aggressive uh, all court? What, what's your game?
2: So when I was younger, I was get the ball and play and grind, you know, as a good athlete. And I, I think I intuitively understood that the game is won by people missing. So if I don't miss and I can get to a lot of balls, I'm going to win a lot of matches. And so I think until I was about 14, 15, that was my objective. Just, you know, I had a pretty good serve, but get the ball in, and that's it. I don't have to do much. That person on the other side of the net is dying to miss. I just have to give them the opportunity. You know, I just can't beat them to that, right? And then once I got older, and you know, USCA coaches and you know different coaches of mine kind of said, okay, well, if you want to you know be a great college player and maybe have a chance at pro, you're gonna have to do a little bit more. And so started working on serving, volleying, uh, chipping, and charging. Back then, that was actually a possibility. Um, <laughs> and so, learning to kind of blend those two styles was, you know, it was difficult. You know, I didn't know when to use which one, and there was a kind of a year or two where my identity was a little muddied. But by the time I got to college, my uh, my coach Jay Lapidus, his thing was like, "Hey, three balls or less. Like, I want you winning the point or losing the point with three shots." Wow. And that's really how the game is played anyway. But I would serve in volley. I would take second serves, come in. Uh, The first time you gave me a 50-50 ball, I'd crack it in a corner try to come in. And guys hated playing me. Like, there was no rhythm. Mm -hmm. You know, they're spending the whole day under pressure trying to pass. And even when they're winning points, they're not getting to do what they want to do. So, you know, it kind of evolved. When I was younger, it was all about making balls. And by the time I was a senior in college, it was just first strike, you know, right to the point. Gotcha.
0: Actually, speaking of which, um, didn't Joey Addis play with
2: you guys? He joined, uh, I think we only had one year together. I believe we had one. So he and I played my, he and I played my senior year together and we made all American doubles and he transferred from Ohio state, but I'm pretty sure we only shared one year together.
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, now you're, yeah, I remember he went to Ohio state first. Yeah. So he was a certain volleyer and I played him maybe once or twice, but I just remembering like, God, this guy's just bringing the pressure, you know, certain volley every time I got to like pick some targets here. And, uh, so yeah, that's that's a great style to play. I mean, a pro tour, like you said, it's a lot tougher, I guess. But
2: yeah, yeah. But we all like Cressy now. All the all the old certain yeah, volleys were yeah, all like right. Cressy, and yeah, 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 exactly. So much fun to watch him.
0: Um, and curious about like your um, family environment because sometimes it varies with like you know how much uh, hands on or hands off your your parents are, for example. So. Were your parents like pretty like into tennis and did they like, you know, did you feel like any pressure from
2: them or were they just like do your thing? You know, it's interesting. So my dad would go to most of the tournaments with me. My Mm -hmm. mom has no idea. I mean, same if I walked (laughs) off the court. Yeah. If I walked off the court, oh, your opponent was left-handed. I had no idea. Like, that's cool. Like, that's fine. Like she was not paying attention. My dad, you know, I said he was a great baseball player. So he knew athletics and he picked up a little bit of tennis, but, you know, in hindsight, like what a great tennis parent, right? Like he, he held me to a standard of my effort um, Mm -hmm. and my attitude. Sportsmanship was a huge thing for them, but he never really, I mean, I had some bad matches and okay, okay, you played a bad match. You know, you, you played a bad match in a recreational sport. Like, okay, like that's, that happens. And then go out and try again. The only thing they wouldn't, you know, except was poor effort. So Mm. there were definitely times, I'm not proud of this, but, you know, in backdrop matches where I'm like, (laughs) oh man, I already lost, you know, I'm out and kind of hanging my head a little bit. And maybe I'd lose the match. I shouldn't. And my dad would kind of be like, hey, you know, I know what you look like when you're engaged. You weren't engaged. And I might kind of fight back because I'm a teenager. And then afterwards, I'd be like, yeah, you're right. You know, I didn't, I didn't do a good job. And, but they were great. But I, I also think no matter how great your parents are, you always want to please your parents. I mean, they flew you to a tournament. They paid money for a hotel. Yeah. Even if they're the best, you still feel pressure to live up to that commitment, you know? So I felt the pressure, but I would also say my, my parents, as tennis parents were fantastic.
0: Nice. I love that. Love that. And then, uh, let's see. So in terms of, um, college, like how, how did that go? And, you know, as far as like your, your, Possibilities like who recruited you and like what made you decide to go to Duke?
2: So, you know, I li- grew up in Chapel Hill, so I was actually hitting at the UNC facility <laughs> like all through high school, which is <laughs> ironic. And then I knew, I knew at a young age that I did not want to try to play pro, so okay. I was looking at, I was going, All right, well, I want to go to a school that's still good because I'm competitive but also that could help me academically if i decide not to stay in coaching or whatever. Mm. So i was looking at duke and stanford. Okay, they're both top 10 academically and athletically. Obviously duke was just on the road for me. I had a couple friends who who ended up going there so that was a nice little connection. So i actually had my visits scheduled for duke, georgia and illinois. And illinois i knew my doubles partner Rajiv Ram, he went there. So I was like, oh, maybe we can play doubles. I kind of knew they'd win Blaze that first year. I mean, they were loaded. I didn't Mm -hmm. think I would play singles. Um, But Mm -hmm. for me, that was like purely a tennis move, right? Like the degree at Duke compared to the degree at Illinois that I could get. I was like, okay, that's a tough one. So I actually just went to Duke on my first visit. And I was like, hey, if I like it, I'm just not going to waste the other coach's time. Nice. So I took one one visit. I, I went there. I loved it. I knew what I wanted. I could have gone to Georgia for a fun weekend, but ultimately I knew what I was looking for. And, you know, so I just, I made a quick decision and it was a great decision for me.
0: Awesome, man. Awesome. I'm glad it uh, worked out very well for you, obviously. Um, to take one step back to junior tennis again, I, I'm curious if you could like, I guess in a sense package, you know, like uh, some advice for, for uh, junior tennis players and parents, what, what would be your keys to success um, in, in junior tennis?
2: Uh, I wouldn't really care about a result before the age of 16. Yeah. You know, they're all trying to go to school. So fine. When you're a sophomore or junior in high school, coaches start to pay attention. But I remember I was living and dying, you know, with 12 year old state tournaments yeah. and I go, man, like I spent a lot of time being nervous about something that really didn't matter at all. And I didn't change things or improve things in my game. Cause I was so scared I might lose one of those events. I mean, I can't even remember those matches now. So I think the patience, and especially younger, just, am I getting better? You know, and, oh, I lost and I'm, I'm only ranked 50 in the country or hundred or 200. Okay. Who cares? You know, that's, that's fine. So kind of playing the long game with that. And then I would also say, you know, having enthusiasm and passion is really important to that improvement. So you have to figure out what the right amount of practice time is. Uh, I see a lot of people thinking they have to play three hours a day to get better. I was top 10 in the country playing an hour and a half, you know, so do you have to do that? No, you don't. Um, And the problem I see sometimes is kids play so much, they lose that enthusiasm and then it's hard for them to
1: improve because they're not that engaged. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG One empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG One at NewBalance.com.
0: Yeah, no, I love that. I uh, love that advice there. Um yeah, it's just really, it's really important, you know, in the juniors, like if I could go back, uh, I would just like work 100 percent on skills and just developing things. Because like I, I was the same, uh, you know, just just trying to get the ball back and, and you know, win points only. And, you know, I'd see some of my peers who I were be- was beating in like the 12s and 14s. All of a sudden, in the 16s and 18s, they would be acing me, you know, left and right. And they had developed, you know, those important shots and, and whatnot. And I was still, you know, in this like grinder mode. So, um, you know, it, and it well, I think it also,
2: a, yeah, it, it also depends what your goal is. Right. So, right, right. you know, if your goal is to play college tennis, well, I mean, I can tell you as a college coach recruiting, if I look at the tennis recruiting lists, their senior year, and then I look at how they did in college, it doesn't look anything like it mm-hmm. because people, every two years they're making jumps. Some people get worse. Some people get better. True but I thought I had to be the number one junior in the country at 14 if I wanted to be any good. Well, that is irrelevant because by 16, that whole group looked different. And by 18, there was another group. And then by the time we got to college, you know, like Isner example, well, now he's ahead of everybody. Well, which one matters more, how you are in college or how you are when you were 12, you know, I'll take the college player. And then if you want to play pro, does it even matter what you play like at age 20 probably matters what you play like at age 25. So I think just knowing what your goal is and then, you know, having perspective and going, Hey, you know what, if I'm taking a step to achieve that goal, then I'm, then I'm on the right path and winning a junior tennis match usually is irrelevant on that path. Yeah. Love that. Great advice,
0: and you did mention deliberate practice, which we're definitely going to get into um, very soon. I'll ask you about, but uh, I'm curious about college tennis as well. Um, So, what makes college tennis this unique um, from all other environments? You know, junior tennis and uh, professional, and so forth.
2: You know, clearly the the team aspect is unique. Uh, You know, you're around eight to ten other kids that are probably very, very close to your level, and depending on where you are in that group. There might be a lot of people better than you. And if, you know, when in my case, we were going to a top 10 team at Duke, each guy on that team was probably the biggest fish in their small pond, wherever they were from. Yeah. And now you go to a big team and now you're all big fish in the, you know, small pond. You're going, man, where do I stack up? And it's not all about you anymore. You know, there's 10 other guys. And so a practice is designed for everybody. And so some parts of that might not be great for your personal game. Some of it may be great. So that's unique. Uh, you know, it's weird. I, no, one's given me a good answer for this and I can't either, but you know, in junior tournaments, you might play two or three singles matches in a day and a doubles match and you, you were fine and you were 16, 17, and then you go to college and you play a dual match and it's just exhausting, you know? And you're like, man, I only played two out of three sets, no ad, and a set of doubles, no ad. Like, how did that, how did that get me tired? But I think it's the emotion. Yeah that those dual matches have. And, you know, you have one or two matches every week. So it's just continuous. You never get that month to just kind of like catch your breath. Once you're in the spring, it's, it's a couple duels every week and that wears on you a little bit as well. But I think most people finish college and go, that was, you know, that environment so much more fun than juniors.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think you're right. You know, like you can play endless amounts of practice sets, but then you up the intensity and then you can play less. And then now you add the you know, the crowds and like, just how tense you can be like trying to fight for your school. And then that's, that's even more difficult. So what would you say are the, the, um, most important traits of a successful college tennis player?
2: Good question. Uh, I know from experience, they come in all different shapes and sizes. So, you know, I recruited guys who were, you know, five, five and had no serve. And I remember clearly, I won't say the guy's name, but I remember clearly watching him at Kalamazoo going, this guy is never going to win in college. I mean, this, I don't understand it. He was a great junior. He won a lot of matches. And I was like, man, he's so small. Like college guys are going to kill him. And he went to UCLA and he killed everybody. (laughs) He was awesome. And I was like, you're an idiot. Like what, (laughs) what what kind of, what, what kind of talent evaluator are you? So, you know, I've seen guys with big serves fail. I've seen them succeed. I've seen little guys who you think don't have enough punch and they go there and they, I'm great. Right, they don't have enough punch and sometimes they do. And so I don't think there's one or two things that, that apply to everybody. Generally speaking, I would say, first thing, I want a kid to have a great mind, you know, emotionally mature. They know their game style. They pay attention to their opponent. They know how to problem solve. You give me that skill. And I think almost any type of style can win in college maybe not at one singles but you got a problem solver who's a competitive athlete they can win at 6 i've seen a lot of funny things happen at 6 singles even in the top 10 in the country the other two physical skills that i would say serve clearly you know if you can you can start to point on offense it's pretty tough to to lose your serve and then the second thing is someone who's a great mover and that doesn't necessarily mean that they're so fast it means that they get in position for the ball. So, mm-hmm. you show me a kid who's got a good serve, can move around the court, strike the ball in the same place most of the time, and then has amazing head on their shoulders. I go, that kid's probably going to be pretty good. Yeah, that's
0: that's great stuff. And I, uh, while you were giving me an answer, I remember that I uh, it was kind of interesting, not very scientific, but I emailed like seventy different college coaches, like in two thousand fifteen, asking them like the most important traits of a successful uh, college tennis player, and they said. Uh, well, by my tallies, I have work ethic was the top one and then competitive, and then um, their integrity. Um, but yeah, it's interesting to to look back on that. But you know, everybody is um curious about like the serve. the serve is so difficult. Like, can you give us like like maybe one or two of your golden tips uh, based on your experience, like helping you know tons of students out on like um, you know some critical keys for for the
2: serve right. It's, you know, like I said, it's the most important stroke. Yeah, You can, once you know what you should be working on, you can go work on it on your own. So to me, there's no excuse to have a really poor serve. The thing I see a lot with my kids now is the toss. And Mm. the biggest thing with the toss is people just launch it into the air as high as they can. And it's tough to time. And, you know, I've kind of done a bunch of research lately and A couple of people smarter than myself have have brought it to my attention and said, hey, you really only need to toss as high as you can reach and extend up. Mm -hmm. And the lower toss keeps your your swing fluid. Uh, You know, wind doesn't affect it. Your timing and your rhythm are the same. It's tough for your opponent to read where you're going. Um, And it's just going to be more consistent day to day than if you're launching that toss five feet above where your contact point is. it's got to drop five feet so that's an additional 10 feet that you're waiting on yeah and that gives you a lot of time to do some weird things with your racket while you're waiting so that's one that i i see pretty consistently the other common one is just trying to keep your palm down you know Mm -hmm. that throwing motion and a lot of people in the beginning open up their palm they get tension in their shoulder they don't swing as fast i know i did that as a junior as well it's very natural but You know, I think if you can get that palm down mastered and you get a nice, low, consistent toss, that's, you know, a low toss, maybe that's not the right way to say it, but you want to toss as high as you can extend, you know, if you, if you're tossing at least that high, it's high enough. Um, And so I say, I think those two things are, are pretty important for a good serve.
0: Yeah. uh, Great tips. I think it was Vic Braden that, that also pointed out that, you know, like if say, if you have a high toss. Like when you're hitting it, the ball is like dropping like pretty fast. But, um, you know, if you have, you toss it, your apex or whatever, you know, the proper height, but you know, not too high, then it actually like hangs at that point for
2: a little little while. So that, you know, right. I I think, I think the way it was explained was when you have a lower toss, your mo you've, you actually have less time to swing, but you have a longer amount of time where the ball is sitting in your sweet spot because the ball's not dropping as quickly. Well so I think that's someone that's where people get, you know, once they lower their toss, they go, Oh, I feel so rushed. And I go, yeah, that makes sense. You're swinging much faster than you used to, but you, you look smooth. And by the way, that ball is now sitting on a tee for you, which will make it easier day to day to hit, you know, hit a good serve.
0: Yeah. That's one of my favorite tips. Like when I made that adjustment, it, it instantly, I had like more, um, more, uh, heat on my serve. And, you know, like you said, there was less pausing and hitching and all this stuff. Good stuff. Good stuff. Um, So yeah, let's, let's talk about deliberate practice, Jonathan. So, I mean, I mean, first off, let's, let's try to define that and then, you know, explain like why
2: it's so important. Right. So, you know, my favorite book, as far as something that helps me with coaching is Peak by Mm -hmm. uh, Anders Ericsson. And, you know, I read that and, you know, I'll forget some of the, you know, core principles in it, but basically it was, you know, that's where Malcolm Gladwell got the 10,000 hour rule. Right, mm-hmm. but it's kind of incomplete because if you just go out and hit balls for ten thousand hours, you don't get that good, and <laughs> my golf game is a testament to that. like I don't <laughs> practice deliberately when I practice golf. I just go out and hit balls, and so yeah. I'm about the same golfer that I've always been. But you know deliberate practice is awesome because conceptually it's anyone can be elite at anything. you know, sure, I'll never be an NBA player because i'm six two fine there there are some things like that, but Almost anyone can develop a great serve. You just have to practice the right way. And part of that method is okay, I've got to have a clear goal. You know, what's my goal? I want to be able to have my palm down. And I need to be getting constant feedback on that from a professional or myself using a camera, but constant feedback. Uh, I need to constantly be out of my comfort zone, right? I need to be uncomfortable. I need to be challenging myself constantly. And part of that is. That it's not very fun to be in that mode. And so that's a big reason why people don't practice deliberately is they want comfort. They want to feel good. And so they go out on the tennis court and I want the ball to feel good today. And I go, well, okay, but if you're trying to be good in six months, you have to work on your palm down. And by the way, today you're going to hit a bunch of terrible serves, but long-term it's going to be good for you. And deliberate practice is very uncomfortable. And so people shy away from it. And that's why you see three, five players at the club who are always three, five players. They never become four O's. But how can that be, right? Because they've been practicing and playing all these matches, but they're not practicing and playing the right way. So, you know, like I said, having a clear objective, getting consistent feedback, being completely immersed in the process and challenging yourself so much that it's uncomfortable and in fact, not enjoyable. And then doing that time after time for 10,000 hours, that process can get you what you want.
0: Is there a way to also make things that are not enjoyable, like to make them somewhat enjoyable? And if that makes sense.
2: (laughs) It does. I mean, and this is a talk I have with most of the kids I teach is so for me, if I want, when I was playing, I wanted to win Kalamazoo. So if you told me, okay, well, if you want to win Kalamazoo, you have to run these sprints and you have to do this practice, which isn't that fun. Well, I didn't care because what I wanted was so valuable, I would do anything. So sure, the actual act of running a sprint is not enjoyable, but what's enjoyable is me feeling like I got closer to what I want. So in some cases, sure, maybe you can make it a game or you can challenge yourself, but at the end of the day, it's like, is the juice worth the squeeze? Like, if you're working so hard, that's why I don't practice deliberately with my golf game because I don't care what I shoot. So, why would I want to go make myself miserable in the driving range, really focusing when I actually don't care about the outcome? So, I think it's important for everyone. Some people just want to play tennis recreationally, and that's great. Then I wouldn't practice deliberately because that's a painful process. I would just have fun when you practice. But if your goal is to be a pro or to be a high level D1 player, then your practice is going to be uncomfortable. But I think you should know in that process that you're a step closer and that's enjoyable. But I, I mean, I don't know many players who just said, man, I really love running sprints. Like <laughs> the act of running a sprint is just a blast. I don't know that you can trick yourself into thinking that's fun.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, it's uh it's interesting. Um It's, yeah, it's really helpful to have those, you know goals in my like Kalamazoo like uh I guess the most recent for me is like when I had like um sectionals I play a, a lot of USTA league matches and stuff so you know when I normally like you know training and all that it's not so exciting but like when I had sectionals coming up like you get like really amped up and you want to do well so then you uh it really helps you to uh to train so let's see here um in terms of um parents as well it's kind of I guess stepping back to junior tennis like What are the biggest mistakes that parents make uh, when they're trying to help their junior
2: player? You know, it's funny. I just, uh, I just talked to Carlos and Josh Goffey about this in particular uh, last week and, you know, junior parents make a, a bunch of mistakes, but they're usually on accident, right? They just want what's best for their kid and they're not doing it on purpose. You know, I think one thing is talking about the matches. You know, the match ends and you go out there and you want to give your opinion of what happened. And I mean, most of the time you're not a tennis coach and most of the time the kid doesn't want to hear it right after a match. And so it's like, what is that process doing there? Like, why, why, why are we doing that? You know, let the, let the kid talk to the coach and let the kid breathe a little bit. That's a big one. I think some parents, like I said earlier, are very into the results when they're younger. Oh yeah. my God, they're not winning when they're 14. Oh, oh my God, are they, are they doing okay? Yeah, they're doing fine. As long as they're working hard and they're on a path, yeah, they're doing great. Oh, but they're not winning. Who, who cares? And that's easier for me to say because I've been through it and I've seen a bunch of kids. So I understand why that anxiety is there, but I think they want to feel like their kid is always doing the best. You know, that's a big thing. And I, I, I just encourage all parents, it's tough. You have to find a coach you trust and you have to trust your kid a little bit but you kind of kind of remove yourself from the process and just say hey as long as my kid is trying like crazy and they're engaged and they're being a good sport then they're being successful and after that i trust them and their coach to work on improving but i see too many parents just getting involved almost on the coaching side and really focusing on the result which can be pretty toxic
0: yeah definitely uh, and i'm i'm grateful like like you you as well to have gone through it. So now I know, like, you know, hopefully not going when I have a kid, I can, when they're playing, I can just be relaxed and um, not worry about like them winning or losing so much, but just developing their skills. And in terms of, I know I'm kind of jumping around a bit here, but back to deliberate practice, what would you say the most common things that players do during practice that is, is a big waste of time?
2: (laughs) I mean, I think your whole practice is a waste of time if you're not focused. Okay. So I think, I think people come out all the time and they're thinking about their school and they're talking to a friend and they're kind of on autopilot and you can't get better on autopilot. You just can't. So you can maintain your skills, but if you're on autopilot over time, you're you're just getting really good at what you already are. So that's a big thing. And and that's a big waste of time. Like you said, college coaches, you asked them what the three things were. And I think all three were a mentality or an emotional. It was integrity. I think you said work ethic and one more. But if you ask a player what they're working on, I guarantee you they're not going to say something between their ears. I'm working on my forehand. I'm working on my serve. Those are all important, but they're not a waste of time. But I would say a better use of your time would be, hey, let me spend half of my, my focus in tennis on becoming a great competitor. And let me spend half that time on how I handle failure because I'm going to lose almost half the points every time I play. That would be a better use of time than thinking about your forehand for an hour straight winning tennis matches. Isn't who has the best forehand, right? Sometimes it is, but most of the time it's not, it's not always who has the best serve. Otherwise Isner would be one in the world or Opelka, whoever it is. It's a collection of things and a mentality is so important. And yet that is just not stressed and very few kids value that the way a coach would. So you know, that's a better way to use your time on the court is to be super engaged and to spend at least part of every practice going. My number one objective is my mentality or my routine in between the point or how I'm practicing my strategy and like specifically allocating time to the mental game.
0: That's really good. Yeah. They, yeah. That would be a great one, actually, that I see like nobody practicing, which is, I guess, when you're playing practice sets or even, you know, baseline games, it's like, in between point routine to to help you refocus yourself and think about the next point, that, that would be awesome. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Like a couple of weeks ago, I, b- before a league match, uh, this is a sh- shameless self promotion, but I was listening to uh, one of my own podcast episodes with like a mental game expert, Jeff Greenwald, about, uh, you know, just resiliency and like playing well in critical moments. And it really actually helped my mindset and you know, I was down three, six, one, three, and then ended up coming back and um, just, you know, I just kind of want to highlight the importance of like, you know, the mental game training and how important that is. And, uh, you know, a lot of times it's, it's going to be even skill or even if not even skill, just uh, who wants it more and who is able to perform um, during the tough moments and by focusing on on the process and executing the game plan rather than the, the externals. Um you know, so uh, it
2: it sounds, it sounds so cliche, but you know, there's a, I I saw someone post this on Instagram the other day. It's like, if, if at first you don't succeed, just do what your coach told you to do the first time. (laughs) And it's like, it almost sounds cliche in coach speak, but we're like, Oh yeah. Focus on what you can control. And, and Hey, let's have a good attitude that helps. Like, we're not saying that to waste time. Like it's a really big part of, of success. And yet the player, and I understand it can get obsessed with, What how they feel and how the ball feels on their strings. And you're going, man, if your goal is to win, then focus on your mindset, focus on your tactics, focus on how you manage yourself emotionally. And sure, of course, you're going to work on your strokes too, but you can win a match when you don't hit the ball as well as the other person. Like that can happen. So why not? Let's go for the low hanging fruit that you can super control yourself and focus on that. But It's tough, right? Like you said, you you've even listened to your own podcast, and you weren't taking your advice before that. And you know, I know I've had instances like that in my life when I was playing where I didn't do the things I knew I should be doing. But it's critical, and coaches say it. I think players just think you're saying it to, I don't know, it's just a cliche, but it's not. It's it's what wins if what gets you better.
0: Yeah, hundred percent. And you know, that being said, with with highlighting how important the mental game is. Do you have any favorite drills, games, or any other um, just like advice in general for amateur players uh, to implement
2: during practice that could that would make it more effective? You know, one uh, you're saying a, a game that specifically helps with the mental side.
0: Uh, no, just in general, like to to make the practice more efficient and deliberate. Um, and any particular drills or anything else that you like?
2: You know, one drill that we've done a couple times is we play a point. A lot of times we have four kids on a court. So they'll play a baseline point or a serve point. And then I make the player who played the point look at their partner and say what happened. I made a a serve out wide. They Mm. returned middle. I hit a short ball in the middle of the court and they missed their approach. Okay. Because in the beginning, it's actually very hard for them. I could probably tell you eight shots every point. And then I could probably go back and tell you what happened five points ago. But I've learned very quickly, if you ask a junior player what happened three seconds ago, that's actually not an easy question at first. And so I'm going, how are you not picking up on these patterns? But the reason is because they don't even know what happened. It's gone. It disappeared. That point happened. It's in the past. So we have them play a game, no rules. And we just say, tell me what happened. And you'll find out a lot of times patterns emerge. I missed a forehand long. I missed a forehand long. I missed a forehand long. And then you go, okay, cool. What adjustment Mm. are you going to make? You know, and so that's one that gets them mentally engaged. And then we like to do a lot of stuff where we get bonus points and, and getting them focused on a specific thing. So, uh, one game we like to play is three, two, one when they're serving. Uh, you get three points if your opponent misses one of their first two shots. Mm. You get two points if you hit a winner on one of your first two shots. And you get one point for everything that goes past four shots. And so the focus for them is, Man, you're going to realize there's a lot of three pointers. Like, that's the game of tennis. There's a lot of missing in the first four shots. Yeah. And so that makes them super aware. You know, I walk around the game, I just keep yelling, Oh, that's three. That's three. (laughs) And I want them to know there's not many twos out there, especially in junior tennis. There's not a lot of aces. There's not a lot of plus one winners, but there are a lot of double faults. There are a lot of missed returns, and there are a lot of missed plus one balls. And so that just gets them thinking constantly when they have to add up the points. Ah, I made another plus one error. Ah, I missed another return. And it keeps them very engaged in, in kind of the correct style of play.
0: Yeah, I like that. I think we probably both uh, know about Craig O'Shaughnessy and I think it's something like 80% of the points and then the four shots or less, something like that. So yeah, cool, good stuff there. And as far as like um, online instruction, I was curious about your thoughts about that. You know, you're obviously like, you know, online, you do a great job uh, on your Instagram page. I see a lot of, uh, you know, clips on there. So everybody should definitely check out Jonathan's uh, Instagram page. But uh, what are your thoughts on, uh, on the effectiveness of online instruction and, you know, any possible, um,
2: you know, issues or perils uh, about it? So it's a great resource. There are some challenges, right? So, you know, I was actually talking to an, another coach I work with. Like, if you don't know anything about tennis, And you went on Instagram or YouTube and you Googled how to hit a better forehand and you watch a video. How would you know if the advice is correct or not? You know, you don't know anything about a forehand. So, how would you know if they're telling, you know, if someone said, Hey, you should really have your palm up on a serve, that's a great idea. (laughs) And you don't know anything, and you don't know anything about tennis. How would you know that's a bad idea? So, it's a really difficult space to know. Who actually knows what they're doing and who is just out there, you know, presenting half truths. That's a very difficult thing. And so I'm sympathetic to people or empathetic and saying, well, man, how would you know what's correct? My advice there would be look at the track record of the coach, Mm -hmm. right? And then be able to figure out if what they're saying is rooted in some sort of fact or science either biomechanically or that something's been proven because a lot of times you can disprove, you know, the people out there that don't really know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's difficult. I mean, I've, I've learned a ton. I mean, there's a couple people, Kyle LaCroix, I met him through Instagram. Mm. He's taught me a lot over the last six months, some mm-hmm. things I had never heard of. And so there's great stuff out there. It's just, I would go and, you know, kind of cross-reference a bunch, fact check it. Oh, I saw Stokey said this about the serve, Well, let me go to this other site and see what they say. Oh, they said the same thing. Interesting. And then go to a third site. Oh, palm down, still palm down, palm down, palm down. Huh. Okay. That's probably, that's probably one I want to look into. And if you see something once, uh, it's probably not based in any fact or, or science. And it probably hasn't worked because, you know, other people aren't adopting that, but it's a great resource. I, I mean, I do the same thing. That's why I love golf. For me, it's, I get in the mind of a, of a novice tennis player. Cause I don't know much about golf. So if I go on YouTube and I'm looking about my driver's swing, you know, I go on there and I go, how do I know if this guy even knows what he's talking about? And so I start playing around with my own swing and it's a, it's a slippery slope, but I would just cross reference things and, and see how much common themes there are amongst each site.
0: Yeah. That's great advice, Jonathan. Um, so kind of on that same track, like what resources do you most study in order to, I know you mentioned uh, Kyle's, um, you know, page, but what, what resources are your favorite for for learning more about the game?
2: So you know, I took the PTR course. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, Great Base. I don't know if you've heard of Great Base Tennis. They oh, have yeah. a great free online yeah. course. They've got great stuff. Um, yeah, I've had it my a lot podcast. of Vic Braden. Yeah, a lot of Vic Braden stuff. They had awesome things that I had learned for the first time. You know, like I said, Kyle, he's been great. Like he'll send me all his presentations that he does at USPTA. He's like the greatest guy and you know reading online but you know the information is out there you just have to be willing to open your mind and learn and challenge your you know existing beliefs i know that i used to think i did certain things on my volley and then after looking at videos of myself and hearing other people explain it i'm like ah i was coaching something that i've never done like mm-hmm. that's not what i do and so you just have to be open and and willing and consistently eager to learn and you know keep seeking out resources instagram is great you know great base that free online course i would encourage anyone to take that there's there's mm. great things in there but you just have to be willing and open minded to to seek out that information that's out there awesome
0: yeah i made a note about that uh, the great base uh, course and shout out to Steve smith who i had on episode i just googled it <laughs> 214 of the podcast so awesome all right. I really hope that you enjoyed my interview with Coach Jonathan Stokey. And remember, this is part one. So part two is coming next week. Uh, if you just downloaded this anyway, as soon as it came out, obviously, if you check it out, you know, a week or more after this episode has been published, then you can listen to part two right away. So definitely check that second part out. And if you enjoy the Tennis Falls podcast and you enjoyed this episode, then I would really appreciate it if you would leave a review for the show. And you can do that at tennisfiles.com slash Apple Podcasts, or do that in your favorite podcast app of choice. But Apple Podcasts is definitely the way to go in terms of having the biggest impact on the show, um, its rankings, and henceforth bringing the show, uh, making it more visible to more people as a result of the higher rankings. So Thanks so much in advance for that, and thanks to all of you for doing so who already have. I think we're you know, well over 100 reviews and ratings so far, so that's fantastic. And I would like to leave you with a quote, as I often do at the end of the show, and this one is by Jared Leto, and Jared said, try and fail, but never fail to try. Really love that quote, and I think as I mentioned, we will have all the uh, links mentioned in today's podcast in the show notes page, or on it, rather. So thanks a lot for listening. Check out part two of this interview. And until then, have a great one. And I'll see you on the next episode of the Tennis Files podcast. This is Maribon Ranshad, signing out.
1: Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit TennisFiles.com.